everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and welcome back to another week of talking nursing and healthcare in general. And we'll throw in a little true crime, of course, and some inspirational stories for you. That's what we like to do here. You guys know that we, each week, of course, I have a, a guest host on from the healthcare profession, and usually a nurse, sometimes someone else. But someone I have never had on is a nursing instructor. So I actually have a nursing, there is a lot of nursing students that listen to this podcast. I hear from them all the time. They're so stinking sweet because they're not jaded yet. <laughs> and they're so excited about being a nurse. So I, I feel like this is a real treat for them just to kind of get to hear the perspective of, of a nursing instructor. So also, we're just going to obviously do a regular episode and we've got, boy, do we ever have a bad nurse story. And it's kind of interesting too, because our nursing instructor is also going to be our good nurse story. So I'm excited to get to talk to her about that. And not only that, she is also a nursing instructor at the University of Portland School of Nursing. You guys know that they have been so kind to us and they promote their DNP program that they do, their hybrid program. And so I'm so incredibly thankful to them and so cr incredibly thankful to you, Erica. This is Erica Bailey. She is an instructor with the University of Portland School of Nursing. And I'm sorry, Erica, I should have asked you this before, but what is your actual title there? Like, what do you do? Yes, I do have a very official title, um, which is <laughs> Clinical Relations Specialist, which makes me sound kind of fancy, but really... Uh, most of my work these days is centered around clinical experiences for our students. So building relationships with healthcare organizations, community organizations uh, to secure clinical placements for our students, and then also focusing on um, ways in which we can enrich those relationships and those experiences, particularly out in the community where healthcare might not be the business of that organization. That sounds like a, actually a very important job because I know that those clinical positions are a lot of times what keep nursing schools from having openings. For That's what causes the limitations a lot of times. That plus having a shortage of nursing instructors. <laughs> but um, that's a great, that's a wonderful job for you to have. And it sounds like a kind of sounds like a fun job, I think. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I mean, I think it, I miss teaching in the classroom with the students. And I also miss being out, being a clinical instructor. But it's a pretty good use of my skill set. I think if anybody's ever done strength finders, I've got a bit of woo. So, you know, being out and chatting with folks and building relationships and stuff is, is something that I really enjoy and I think that I'm good at. And you're right. It really is kind of the foundation of our program. You know, it's important what students are learning in the classroom, but without clinical experiences, um, they'd be really lacking, probably have some trouble finishing finishing the program or passing the NCLEX. So, it's definitely a, a bedrock of, I think, all nursing programs. Yes, for sure. Well, you guys, we're going to talk uh, with Erica some more after the bad nurse story, and we'll go. We'll get into the good nurse story. We'll we'll be talking about nursing school and some a project that she's working on right now, which is fascinating. So, but first of all, I guess we have to get into the true crime story. This is always the story that everybody <laughs> comes here for. I feel like, but today is kind of a, a little bit of a different bad nurse story because you know, sometimes they're not about nurses. This is, it's good nurse, bad nurse, but we 
We talk about doctors. You, of course, sometimes we talk about them a little too much. But we've also picked on other people, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, all sorts of healthcare professionals. But sometimes we throw in someone who is actually not a healthcare professional at all. So, you know, you might be thinking, well, then why are you doing them as the bad nurse story if they're not in healthcare? Well, I didn't say they weren't in healthcare. I said they're not a healthcare professional <laughs> because guess what? There are people out there who somehow are able to get jobs, very prominent jobs, important jobs in hospitals, clinics, all over by using the credentials and education of other people who actually are the professionals and have the education. It's sad, it's scary, and it's downright perplexing how these people are able to get away with it. I'm just completely flabbergasted. I don't understand it at all, Erica. I mean, you working at a school of nursing for, in particular, I mean, you're a nurse, you know how hard everyone works. Yeah, to get those credentials. It's just not fair for someone to do this. No, no, it's definitely not. Folks work really hard. And I too was really perplexed by this story. You guys are not going to believe it. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I just kept on scratching my head for a number of reasons. One of one reason is going to become real obvious like later on when we tell you some specific details of this story. I really, I think a lot of nurses all over are going to be going, excuse me, uh, what what was that detail? You know what I'm talking about, Erica. When we get to that part of the story, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and it's kind of having me questioning my career choices, but we'll see. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, you guys. I'm totally kidding. So this is the story of Sonia Emery. Sonia was born in New York City in 1966, somewhere around 1966. I know she turned 54 this year, and I think that she she was born 1965, 1966. She was born to a single mom in Yonkers. She definitely, and even according to her and other people in her family, had an emotionally difficult childhood, which is not unusual for a lot of people. And it definitely doesn't excuse criminal behavior or it doesn't ex- it certainly doesn't excuse hurting other people but sometimes it can help us understand why someone did what they did so that's why we like to go back and just sort of talk about where things began and sometimes we can kind of see where where things started going wrong and maybe it helps us understand how to prevent sometimes some of these things so she her attorney what's interesting is her attorney said something that when i read it i thought oh that's an interesting way of of referring to that, he said that she doesn't really like to talk about her childhood and she tries to sanitize it when she when she talks about it. I thought, wow, how how interesting because people who've been listening to this podcast for a while will probably be familiar with uh, the fact that I had a pretty rough childhood. And I when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, I, I see myself there because I, I wouldn't say I'd try to sanitize it, but I think I do maybe. I think I have definitely been guilty of doing that because for one thing, I feel like people who had a rough childhood, maybe raised in foster care, or maybe were victims of abuse or neglect, probably worry that someone who hears that about them will assume that it caused you to be somehow a bad person. And that it's like, oh, that's probably caused you to be like warped and I don't know, because sometimes that's just the stereotype and a stigma that goes along with someone with that childhood. So I can understand, when I read it, I was like, wow, what insight he had to say that. Because she, even though like he's her defense attorney, 
And he's going, give me something to work with here. I'm trying to get you off. And she's like, no, I had a pretty good childhood. And, he, and then he finds out actual details. And he's like, wait, your mother struggled with substance abuse. Your mom kind of liked to party. She would leave you alone when you were a teenager to take care of your younger sibling. That's not okay. And she's probably sitting there going, oh, you know? Yeah, definitely could have helped, helped her defense. It's interesting to me that she didn't even realize that 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 could have been something that well that that could have been the very beginning of her behavior because she learned coping mechanisms and survival skills from a very young age what she that she learned that sometimes you got to do whatever you got to do to survive so interesting on her defense from her defense attorney's point of view I think for him to say that so she, it was reported that as a teenager, she had to take care of her younger sister. She was more of a mom, I think, to her sister. When she turned 18, she left the home and she actually got married at the age of 21 in 1986 and moved to California and actually went back and got custody of her younger sister. That's not unusual for, for that to happen if there's like an older sibling that's taking care of a younger sibling in a home like that. And then that older sibling is able to kind of get on their feet and have some stability to then go back and say, hey, I want to I take care of my younger sibling. They don't want to leave them in that vulnerable situation, you know? Right. Which again, like that kind of makes, it makes me like her, <laughs> you know? I can't help it. I'm just like already, I, I kind of like her, but she... <laughs> You know, people do things, it, things happen. So she and her husband had a child together, but he was in the Navy. So he traveled around quite a bit and eventually they got a divorce. And then when he, once he left the Navy, he disappeared completely from their lives and really didn't help support Emery and their child. So she's kind of by herself. Right you know, now, when all this happened, it was coming out, her son was 30 years old and had a five-year-old daughter himself. And he told everyone that she actually was supporting him financially and made sure that he and her granddaughter, his his daughter, had a roof over their heads and food to eat. So again, not excusing, not excusing at all criminal behavior, but maybe just trying, maybe trying to understand why someone might do. I don't know. It's kind of hard to justify it when you hear <laughs> Oh, because like it's one thing to provide enough money for, but then when you start seeing some of the, you're like, eh, I don't know if we can really justify that. Right. So going a little, it's going a little far. So I said she got married in 1986. A lot happened, I'm sure, between 1986 and when the story sort of picks back up. And I know that there was some criminal behavior that happened there because of some of the trial records later on but there's not a whole lot documented as far as what it was. So I don't know exactly what she was sort of doing. I think she was trying to probably live hand to mouth and provide for herself and her family is what I think happened. Right. It'd be unusual for 20 years to go by without anything and then all of a sudden to decide, well. It's funny because I don't think she had a lot of, well, she didn't have much of an education and she was just doing the best she could, I think, you know, just try to provide mm -hmm. and she was providing. Somehow, but then two and two by two thousand five, she that's when she really kind of got started with her career of falsifying documents and stealing identities in order to obtain healthcare employment. 
under false pretenses. So in 2006, January 2006, she was hired as a per diem administrative supervisor with the hospital in Stamford, Connecticut. She used a fake social security number on her application and claimed she was a registered nurse in two states on her resume. And in November that same year, she was hired by a medical clinic in Decatur, Georgia. And the doctor who ran that clinic was so impressed with her in the interview that he hired her on the spot. And he was he, he had later said that he was so desperate to have an, an office manager mm-hmm. that he just thought, okay, I've got this person right here in front of me. Yeah. Very, her resume looks great. (laughs) (laughs) And she obviously was impressive in an interview. She somehow was able to convince him that that she would be good at the job. And so he hired her without actually the background check being completed, which is, geez, people don't do that. I don't don't care how desperate you are. You got to, you got to do these background checks. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. These, these positions are way too important. So, when her background check did come back, it showed her actually associated with multiple social security numbers. And let me just give you guys some advice. If you're ever in the position of hiring people and you see someone come back with multiple social security numbers, there's something wrong because you get one when you're born and that's it. You don't get another right. One. <laughs> there's just one. So that was a huge red flag to him, of course. And he somehow contacted a colleague of his who was connected with her. I don't know if it was someone that maybe she worked for or that person worked at another clinic where in in sort of, I don't know, some capacity, but that person that he contacted said, no, she's a total fraud is the, the way that that person referred to her. And so, of course, he fired her. But then in 2009, she was hired by a medical practice group in New York City, and she was hired as their clinical director. Okay, this is where... (laughs) She just kept up in her game. That's what I think is so amazing is she kept climbing the ladder. Look, this girl broke the glass ceiling before (laughs) we ever... (laughs) She didn't even know there was a glass ceiling. She bested right on through that thing. Yeah, she did. (laughs) So her annual salary for this job was approximately... $135,000 a year. I I mean, this was in 2009. That's a lot of money. And no Uh, student loans to have to pay back with it. No. And she claimed under W-4 that she was exempt from paying taxes. (laughs) I can't, that's what really like, I'm just going, this woman is smart enough. Like she's smart enough to convince all these people, falsify all this documentation to where it looked legitimate sit there through an, I mean, confidence and courage to sit there through an interview. I have the credentials and I'm I'm scared to death to go into an interview. Yeah. I can't imagine if you don't have any experience in healthcare at all and you're literally going to go not just to get a job in healthcare, but high up, you know, like in administration. Yeah. But she didn't know, like, you don't mess with the IRS. You're seriously going to sit there and not pay your taxes and you're getting this much income. Right. Like, I think that's what ultimately drew attention to her, right? If she just paid taxes, she might have kept this ruse going for who knows how long. It's just unbelievable. Her resume for obtaining that that job as the clinical director stated that she had degrees from Emory University and a nursing license for the state of New York and Georgia. So then she left that job in 2010, and then in 2011, she applied for a job as an executive consultant with a healthcare consulting company located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
So that company provided healthcare consultants to hospitals all throughout the country. So part of her job in that position was to assist with designing operating rooms. That's horrific. I cannot even imagine this. So in order to get that position, she had claimed that she had a Bachelor of Science in Nursing, a Master of Health Administration, a Master in Business Administration, and a Doctor of Philosophy from Emory University. She's never attended Emory University, and she's never attained, obtained any degree of any kind. But because she had created such an impressive and elaborate trail of false and forged <laughs> documents, verifying her credentials and her education, the employer hired her without doing a formal background check. Again. Again. Unbelievable. They offered her a job with a base salary. And I know you guys that are listening to this, are, please be careful if you're driving down the road because I, I swear it makes me, kind of makes me mad. But I, you guys know I always cope with everything by laughing at everything. So her base salary at this job was $285,000 a year. I didn't even know nurses were making that like anywhere let alone not nurses. I don't know. I don't understand this. And when I when I first heard this, I was just like, that cannot possibly be right. What is she doing that is so important that she has, that she needs $285,000 a year to do it? But that's what she was making. The first two hospitals that this consulting firm placed her at requested that she be removed from the project. So I know you guys are going to be shocked, but she wasn't exactly performing, a, you know, doing a stellar <laughs> job. I mean, believe it or not, even if she could BS her way through an interview, she didn't have the knowledge, you know, and the, ex- the really the knowledge and expertise that to, to actually do the jobs. And so she was ticking people off. They were like, no, this person is doing a terrible job. Get her off these projects. And the president of that consulting firm later said that he he actually considered firing, firing her at that point. But then I'm sure she felt the heat coming. Mm-hmm. She went to her employer and claimed that she had stomach cancer. Now, that's just disgusting. And I always get so disgusted with people who do stuff like that. I'm just like, wow, there are people out there yeah. who really get that horrific diagnosis that is so devastating because stomach cancer is one of those things that will sneak up on you. And it's it's a devastating diagnosis usually. Yeah. So it wasn't true, of course, and her employer didn't know that. And so because they are good, kind people, they didn't fire her. They didn't want to like fire someone who just got diagnosed with stomach cancer. So that was that bought her some time. Meanwhile, the IRS is after her for not paying taxes, of course. They're not going to let her get by with this. They, those people are going to be on you like white on rice. They're yep. not going <laughs> to get away with anything. Oh, So they sent requests to her employer to pay have payments taken out. That They will get their money one way or another. They sure will. But being the ever courageous and bold uh, <laughs> Sonia Emery that she is, she was not afraid whatsoever of the IRS and then she just, she's like, hey, I'm good at falsifying documents. I'll just make a false document that looks like it came from the IRS that says I paid all my back taxes and I don't owe anything else. And I'll just fax it over to the office where I work and then everything will be okay. And that's what she did. <laughs> Gosh, if I knew it was that easy. I mean, you know, Erica, all this time we didn't realize we didn't even have to pay taxes. No. All we got to do is just get some letterhead. <laughs> I know. Just like writing crayon at the type, the United <laughs> States Department of Treasury. <laughs> so this is going on like 
she's got this job. She's faking her way through. Talk about fake it till you make it. And then she's got the IRS kind of on her trail. So shortly after this happened with the IRS, she left that employer and started working for a hospital network in Wisconsin. And so she was able to get this job because it was a hospital that she had had kind of worked at as a consultant with one of those. So they were, she was, they were familiar with her and must have been impressed by her because as time went on, she got better at these jobs and she got better at faking it somehow because then she got to where they were actually impressed with her. Some of these places loved her and thought she was doing such a great job. And so, yeah, they must have thought she was an expert, mm -hmm. you know? Right. They hired her as a clinical expert who had, quote, a lot of operating room experience at Emory (laughs) Hospital, Emory University Hospital. So at this new job, part of her responsibilities were to observe and recommend changes to the hospital surgical processes and procedures. What? Right. You have this person. Oh my gosh. Well, what's really frightening to me is to think of the surgeons and how ticked off they must have been (laughs) when, you know, these random weird, you know, changes were coming on. They were like, what is going on? And some of the changes that that she made, they caused total chaos and mass confusion and mass exodus. You know, doctors and nurses, they were leaving in droves because they were just like, this is... I mean, I can imagine this because... I think about at work whenever a change comes, you know, people don't like change. They don't. They don't deal with it well. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And it could be the best idea in the world. And people just don't like, like, leave me alone. I just want to do my job. Stop yeah. changing things all the time. Can you imagine if somebody that doesn't even know what they're doing comes in, <laughs> makes all these changes? And apparently she was making them all like at the same time when she created just absolute chaos yeah. there. So this was causing some people to raise their eyebrows and just be like, something's off here. Something is not right. And they start looking into her. And in 2014, that employer discovered that her credentials, her credentials were fraudulent. Finally. Yeah. So her husband, his last name was Robinson. And so her name was actually Sonia Emery Robinson. And so one of the nurses that she stole the identity of and used her nursing license and that sort of, all of you know, her credentials, her name was Sonia Robinson. And that poor woman has been put through the ringer oh, because of this. It's so unfair. It's just so unfair. So she had already been, by the time now she, of course, they discover this and, and they're not going to let her stay there, but she had already been paid approximately $267,000 while working there. <laughs> oh, in 2015, she was hired by a company that served as a healthcare consultant headhunter. So a recruiter company that's like going out and finding like these super high executive, high paid people. Yeah. And they hired her. <laughs> and she was, I mean, seriously, like that's your job. Your job. That's your, like you had one job. <laughs> that's what I'm just, your yeah. job is to find these people. <laughs> How do you, Anyway, I can't, I still like I told I told Erica before we started this. I said you're gonna have to stop me because I'm gonna want to sit here totally incredulous the whole time because every detail right. I'm sh- I'm just I can't I can't get any more flabbergasted. They were probably driven by the money though, right? Because you get paid a percentage of the the positions that you yeah. place. So they're like, oh great, we just made a huge commission. 
We don't care who Look this at woman her credentials. is. She's, she's like making up, <laughs> she's making up all this crazy stuff that really is so inflated. And yet I'm sure it had to have been too good to be true, but they just wanted to believe it, I guess. And in this yep. job, she was working in utilization management, which essentially gave her the power to decide whether an individual received or was denied benefits for medical care. I mean, seriously, that does, it's like, oh, utilization review, that's big deal. Yeah, she's literally one of the people sitting there deciding whether or not someone's going to have an operation. Or seriously, that that's, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. it makes me so mad when I think about it. This happens all the time in this country where people are denied healthcare yeah. because they can't afford it or they have insurance that just refuses to pay for it. And you just want to go, what? What the heck? And to think that this fraudulent person who has nothing to do with healthcare. Because what criteria would she even use? What knowledge or experience would she be relying upon? Yeah. I would hope that she would like in that position, just be like, you get get the surgery and you get the surgery. (laughs) Don't deny anyone. I mean, if I was in a position where I was making that choice and if if I'm going to go out on a limb here and be fraudulent anyway and yeah. not have a clue what I'm doing, I think I'm going to err on the side of being like, <laughs> everybody gets a surgery. So Indeed. But she made 30, again, you guys, hold on to your seats here. She made $32,000 a month at this job, $384,000 a year, deciding whether or not people get the healthcare procedures that they need. I can't even, I just don't, I don't know. So in total for all her fraudulently obtained employment from 2012 to 2018, she received over $2 million, $2,308,000, you guys, $2,300,000. In six years. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) again, I did not know that there was even such a thing where nurses, I mean, I know that there are CNOs and directors of nursing and that those people, you know, rightly so, they do make a lot of money. But I I didn't realize there's like consultants that go into hospitals and make all this money. You guys, if you're out there and you're hiring, I'm... um, (laughs) Exactly. I'm sorry if my manager's listening to this right now. I'm just kidding. (laughs) What really kills me, you know, the thing that's, still just like, it's like the icing on the cake for this crazy story is that she didn't pay taxes on any of that income. Yeah. So according to the IRS, she failed to pay $697,000 in taxes, almost $700,000 in taxes for from 2000, 2008 to 2018 for 10 years. It's a lot <laughs> Again. of money. That's more money than any of us made in that 10 years. It's true. The thing is, she did... Later on, when, during her, she didn't go through a trial, but uh, during like, for the court proceedings, her attorney submitted proof that some of her employers actually were really, really happy with the job that she was doing. So this woman was smart enough to actually eventually figure out basically how to do these jobs. Mm -hmm. And and they were happy with her, her, her work. I feel like I could fake myself my way through this too. I'm starting to be like, I'm just going to put myself out there. Why not? I mean, (laughs) what could it hurt? hurt? Hey, can I have $300,000 a year for doing something? I'll pretend. Right? I can pretend. (laughs) 
So several of the nurses whose identity Emery stole and uh, stole have reported being harassed for years, years on end, suffered years of stress and humiliation. You can imagine like never knowing, going to the store to make a purchase, going to buy a home, a car, anything like that. And, you know, being told, oh, you know, you something, this came back, like something's wrong with your credit or, yeah. you know, and then. And they have actually put in the hard work to pay their bills on time and do what do what they're supposed to, get the credentials, put in the hard work to get the nursing license and the education. And they're literally being treated as though they didn't and they right. are deadbeats that don't pay their bills. feel really bad for those people. I do too, because from what I understand, it's a really long and difficult process to untangle yourself from identity theft. Yeah, Sonia Robinson, the 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 person that she, one of the people, there were several people, but one of the people, she can, she was in an interview and she said that it's just, it feels impossible to really get it done because every time she thinks she's got it uh, worked out, something else will come along. And she said she just gets to the point where she's just like, stop, stop. This is torture. Yeah. I just, I can't imagine. Like a nightmare you can't wake up from. Yeah. How awful. So Sonia Emery would attempt to evade the consequences of her actions uh, from time to time because as years would go on, you know, the IRS would try to catch up with her or her employers would catch up with her or she would be indicted for this or that, arrested for this fraudulent behavior or that fraudulent behavior. She would always get out of things by feigning illness. She's claimed everything from, obviously, we talked about the stomach cancer, debilitating migraines, head trauma due to a fall. That was the way she would get out of of trouble. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what she used. And it's unfortunate because people who do that, really, there are people who suffer from debilitating migraines. There obviously are people who suffer head trauma due yeah. to falls. And these things are not always easy to prove that you have. And someone comes along does this and it ruins it for, you know everyone who really do you know, all the people who actually suffer from these things you realize that people are going to be questioning like oh yeah right. do you really have it right so she did plead guilty to all charges and of course the attorneys have been going back and forth for the past several months this all kind of started at the beginning of this year the whole process and They've been making motions back and forth and statements as to why she should be punished, why she should not be punished, the the defense attorneys and the prosecutors. So in October 2020, the guys, this just happened. I just found this story and I was just shocked. I was surprised I was able to get the court documents because usually it takes a while and I have to wait. After I find a story, I have to wait because it takes a while for it to get uploaded. But the federal government is really good about getting it updated pretty quickly. And so I was able to get all of the court documents for the story and see it. And it was just really fascinating. But her attorney filed a motion with financial records that stated that she had a gambling addiction that started back in 2006. And the documents were from casinos and it would it would show canceled checks that she wrote for like $3,000 and $10,000 and 15, 18, like, over and over and over again, she obviously had a gambling addiction mm-hmm. that started way back then, and no one knew. 
And she didn't even tell her to, again, she's in trouble and she is sort of attempting to cover up. She doesn't want to admit that she has this gambling addiction. And somehow her attorney is able to uncover this and he's like, okay, now we understand at least. And he even said, it's not to excuse her behavior, of course, but at least we can understand where it was coming from. Yeah, and it's almost like she had so much momentum that it mm -hmm. was probably easier to just keep going than to try and stop herself, especially if she was in debt. Yeah, and I understand now, like, who, who makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and then can't afford to pay their taxes? But I imagine she was probably, and she was supporting her her grown son and his daughter. Uh, her mother had come back into her life, got herself clean and sober and came back into, back into her life. And she was kind of helping with some babysitting. But I think that she also was helping her mom maybe too financially. So I know she, you know, between the gambling addiction and, and taking care of her family, she was going through all that money. Yeah. So the judge sentenced her to 65 months in prison or he ordered her to pay back the $2.2 million that she took from her employers. I don't know that she's going to be able to do that, but... <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. Her attorney argued, and all this, this guy's something else too, because he argued that she shouldn't have to pay back the money because she actually... <laughs> this is, I, I can't even say that with a straight face. He said that she shouldn't have to pay back the money because she actually did the work for the companies. And they were happy. They were actually happy. And he submitted actual emails between her bosses or, or people like her supervisors where they were going back and forth talking about what a, a great employee she was and what a how how, fort, how fortunate they were to have her. Yeah, her attorney tried really hard to get the judge to not make her pay back the $2.2 million or maybe to lessen it. Because, well, it's not like she did, it's not like, it's not like she stole the money. She she did work for it. Right. But the judge, was, yeah, the judge was having none of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got to give it to him though. He at least mm -hmm. gave it a good try. Nice try. Nice try. You did your job there, defense attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is our bad nurse story. We'll so your nursing instructor, obviously. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely want to talk about that. What is the project that you're working on right now? Tell us a little bit about what it, what's the name of the project and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Well, I guess maybe I'll just tell you a little bit of why the project and then I'll tell you about the project. So I recently had been asked um, with a couple of my colleagues to participate in a debriefing session with some nursing students from another nursing school here in Oregon. And this was a group of students who identified as BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and they wanted access to some BIPOC um, nursing faculty. And so we had this experience with this group of students who we didn't know. It was really emotional. It was really powerful. And in the middle of it, one of the students had said, you know, I really wish that there was a space for nurses of color, like out in the world, you know, for practicing nurses. And I thought, you know, that's kind of something I had been visioning around. Like I was trying to think of what my next move was. I really wanted to be able to help support the healing and, and community building around folks of color, particularly because that's how I identify especially in these times that we find ourselves. But I'd never really thought about focusing on nurses specifically. But when she said that, 
like within 24 hours, like my brain was just going crazy. And I thought, the Nurses of Color Collective. And so I started Googling and no such thing existed. And so within that week, I, you know, had a website and a registered business and the Nurses of Color Collective was born. It's definitely in its infancy. This all happened in August. And I really want it to be a co-created community. But I envision it as a place where people can, I don't know what it looks like in other states, but here in Oregon, if you are a nurse of color, you are working in predominantly white spaces. You're caring for predominantly white patients. Nursing school is predominantly white folks. So that can be a lot to navigate. And so having a community like ours where folks can kind of feel like it can kind of be a calm from the storm, if you if you know what I mean. And I know sometimes it's hard for people to understand that even just the day-to-day interactions in predominantly white spaces can sometimes feel like that to folks of color. And so I just really want to be able to build community Um, Have it be a space where people can feel kind of seen and heard in their authentic selves. I hope one day to be able to do like workshops and offer mentoring and and other sorts of things that will grow out of this vision. That's kind of the long and short of it, I guess. And I just really look forward to what, how it will grow, what it will become. But it really is, you know, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but it really is sort of for the collective. So I want it to be of the collective. So my work right now is really trying to understand what would people really want out of this space. What I like about your idea is that rather than just one minority group, collectively everyone pulling together because I feel like that group is going to be stronger because you're going to have each other's backs. And I, and I do feel like that you are probably going to have similar experiences. I know that Everyone is different. So yeah. you're going to all have different experiences and you know, you don't want to generalize people. However, more the more voices, the more powerful you're going to be and and feel. So I like your I really I just love your idea. I've only been a nurse in the area where I live in Tennessee and the experience that I have had is that there are very few people of color in nursing here. And so and I would say that the patient population is 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 more diverse. Uh, mm-hmm. It is predominantly white, but it's still pretty diverse. Though there are a lot, there is a pretty substantial Hispanic uh, population, African American population in this area. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, I would agree with you that the patient population here is definitely more diverse than the workforce. And that's actually one of the problems. Um, I don't know what it looks like in other states, but I know here in Oregon, we have an organization called the Oregon Center for Nursing who's focused sort of on workforce development and really trying to diversify the nursing workforce here in the state. Well, a big part of, you know, diversity is kind of a state, right? You're either diverse or you're not. But what I think people are really trying to get towards is more like equity, But in order to retain nurses of color, to retain and support nursing students of color, they need community. And most folks that I talk to, you know, they may be one of a handful of nurses of color on their unit, in their cohort, et cetera. And so if if those experiences that you're having, you don't have anywhere to take that. You don't have anyone to sort of debrief with or 
I agree with you that we have, we all come to the place with our unique lived experiences and identities, but we do also share a commonality of being nurses of color navigating predominantly white spaces. And I see it as a real value to sort of help not only, like I said, support nursing students, because the organization is open to students, of course. They kind of inspired the whole thing. And, you know, they inspire everything. I love students, too. But also to help support nurses out there in the workforce, where if they only have a coworker or two who they might talk to about something, that they have another community where they can go and find that support. You know, Oregon, I think is below the national average, probably on every racial demographic. I don't have a comparison in front of me, but it's it's much lower than what you, like, I think the Black population just in general is about 1.9. It might be pushing 2% here in Oregon. So the population of Black nurses is is definitely pretty low. I don't have exact stats on other groups, but it's just really important to find ways that we can support these nurses so that they're available to take care of patients that would like to see themselves reflected when the nurse walks in the room. You know, the physician walks in the room, the respiratory technician walks in the room, or therapist, I'm sorry, all those folks. I mean, it's important to diversify the workforce all around. Um, But my hope is that this can just be one small piece of maybe what helps make that possible. Well, I love, I love that idea. The more discussion that we have like that, the more educated everyone will be. And then we'll all understand, like, there's things that that people said. My husband and I have started watching, like, sitcoms and stuff from, like, before I was born. Like, back in, like, the 60s and stuff. Like, just just because it's like, look at this. It's kind of funny. You kind of see them. You see their furniture. You see them using, like, their their food and drinks and stuff. It's all, like, different. And we're just, like, laugh, like, look at those clothes. You know, stuff like that. And then we hear them say things and I'm just like, oh my gosh, the world has changed so much because this is a cleaned up version of what these people are calling, a re, you know, the re- representation right. of right. what happens in society. And, and it's like totally yeah. inappropriate, like totally inappropriate that the way that they would talk about homosexuality or just representing someone of color in in a way that's really disrespectful, trying to be funny. And it's like, you just sit there and go, is this seriously our world? And some of these sitcoms, some of these sitcoms were just like from the 90s. And I'm like, are you kidding? This is crazy. So what happens the reason these things have changed is because of dialogue. It's because of communication. It's because when you let, when you're able to, everyone's able to talk to each other and you realize, oh, I didn't know I was doing that or I, I had no idea you were feeling that way. Well, then people change. And and I don't know. I, I feel like our society gets it definitely better does. with communication. It definitely does. And, you know, I don't know if you tend to put things in show notes, but I have a really great article I could send you to add that helps explain why folks of color need spaces without white folks. Like, what's the rationale behind that? It's definitely not because Mm -hmm. we're dealing with overtly racist or prejudicial environments. It's, It's far more subtle than that. And I think oftentimes those types of experiences... Uh, nurses of color are often having with patients, not necessarily with coworkers, right? Like, what does it feel like 
to have a patient refuse care because of the color of your skin. You know, it's different to have a patient refuse care because they just don't like you, but it 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 just feels a kind of way when that happens and it's hard for, you know, not to say that your white colleague couldn't understand that oh yeah, that sucks, but they don't really understand the deeper um emotions that may be going on. The way I liken it to is like for females, you know, for women, if you've ever been in a situation where you're in an environment where you're like the one female mm-hmm. and there's like a bunch of men and you're trying to kind of like exist with some harmony with everyone and you don't want to be a typical girl because they're all talking and you don't want to act sensitive to things they're saying. And so there's just a whole dynamic that's just really awkward, uncomfortable. You just want to fit in. And I feel like there must be some element like that uh, with people of color trying to live in a world where everyone around yeah. them looks different than they do. And and it's probably just like relaxing and comforting just to be around other yep. people that are yep. just like, that get we it, call that it understand. Well, we don't. I can't, I don't remember who came up with that term, but there's definitely code switching that happens. And and you, you're able to let your guard down when you're among fellow folks of color. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that we're talking about this. It's kind of, you know, this is, it's not a comfortable thing to talk about, especially as a white person, you know, like you're scared to death, you're going to say the wrong thing. I have a really good friend of mine. His his name is Q. Swadek is his name, but his he goes by Q. Q the nurse. He's got a YouTube channel and everything. Mm. And he comes on here and guest hosts a lot. He's a travel nurse now. And he's hosted a lot of episodes of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And we are really good friends. He's come to Knoxville on his way, passing through to visit. And he's from South Africa. And so he and I have had a lot of discussions like this. And I feel like we've known each other for so long and I can be really comfortable having conversations with him and not have to be like scared I'm going to say yeah. the wrong thing. Like, in fact, I joke about it sometimes. Like, oh my gosh. Or like I call him racist. Like he'll, he'll say something like that's like reverse racism, but like it's not. Like I'm, I guess what I'm saying is like sometimes he'll be, he will refer to things in a stereotypical way that like if I were to say it, I would, never say it because yeah. it would feel racist if I said it. And I'm just like, how, what are you doing? You can't say that. And then he laughs and laughs about it. And he's like, yes, I can. And I'm like, that's just not fair. I'm not going to be a part of this conversation. I, you don't understand. I can't be a part of this conversation. <laughs> so, it's just so funny. Like, but I, Me too. I love that we're having this conversation and I feel like it's super, super healthy and helpful and the more we can like, you know, laugh, but yet have, you know, be serious about the conversation, the more change is going to come about and more people will understand. It's not an easy thing to understand. It's easy for people to get defensive over it because nobody, most people, I feel like most people, especially in health, I mean, healthcare professionals are good people for the most part. No one wants to think of themselves as, you know, racist or being prejudiced or making someone else feel uncomfortable. Like, I feel like we all want to be inclusive and just everybody get along and all of that. And yet we do things constantly. They're so insensitive because we just don't know what we're doing. So it's so healthy for us to have these conversations. I think it's really important. Yeah. So for you guys who are listening that are students and you want to kind of um, pick the brain of a nursing instructor and kind of understand what goes on behind the scenes at at a nursing school, from what I, uh, just from the experience that I've had with the University of Portland, it seems like a really cool school. I think 
Portland itself, I would love to be able Mm -hmm. to go there just from what I know. It just sounds like a cool place. So what, from your perspective as a nursing instructor, is there anything that you can tell? And and like we have a lot of nursing students, but also mm-hmm. a lot of prospective nursing mm-hmm. students that listen to this podcast. They're like, I'm when I graduate from high school, or when I get, I'm doing my prereqs, and they're so excited. Is there any advice that you can give to prospective nursing students, like people who are con- considering going to nursing yeah. school? First of all, I would say, don't give up on your dream. I don't know what it looks like in other states, but in Oregon, it can be kind of a steep climb. I actually came to nursing somewhat late in life. I was surprised to find out you're 47. You certainly don't look it, but I turned 50 this year, and I didn't graduate nursing school until I was 41. So I went to community college. I did my prereqs and then transferred to a university program. And, you know, it took a while, and it took a lot of perseverance, but I would say just don't give up and don't Don't be discouraged by what the circumstances are that you might be facing, whether it's, you know, needing to retake a class or struggling with balancing other responsibilities like, you know, family responsibilities, having kids or whatever it might be. Because one of my favorite sayings that someone said to me a long time ago that I say all the time is the time is going to pass anyway. So if you're thinking like, I'd really like to consider nursing, consider nursing because one way or another, you're going to turn... 41, 35, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you you might as well take that journey if it's something that you want. So that's probably the advice I would give to those considering nursing. I love that advice because I do think that there are a lot of people who do have that dream in their heart. They want to become mm-hmm. a nurse, but they feel like it's impossible it's because really it is hard. hard to get into nursing school sometimes. And it is competitive. And you do have to have, you have to have certain grades. You know, you're not obviously... Yep. You, that's just a given. You don't want people <laughs> given this kind of responsibility, yeah. you know, of taking care of people that, I mean, come on. But if you do have that dream, I think I feel like if you yeah, are willing to absolutely. work hard, you can absolutely. do it. Absolutely. So, so, and any advice you can give for actu- people in, who are in nursing school right now who, <laughs> who I know. feel like they're not going to make, I know. just not going to make you know, it another day? I had a meeting day. with some students just before this, and we're nearing the end of our semester. We actually cut it short we, because of, you know, what's happening with COVID here. Um, our semester's uh, going to shift a little bit after Thanksgiving, and students are weary right now. You know, I don't know when this will air, but... You know, there's always that time in the term where things just seem insurmountable. You know, the the brief moments where it might feel like you've got things under control don't last very long. So the best advice I gave myself when I was nursing school and continue to give it now is to take it one day at a time. One assignment, one test you need to study for, one paper you need to write, and just, just keep scratching away at it. And also at the same time, keep the big picture in mind. Remember when you feel so buried in all of the things that you need to do, um, why you're doing it, and that eventually you will get to the end. Um, the happiest part of my job is is graduation, commencement. Um, I have a hard time not sobbing through the whole thing, you know, and we have pretty large cohorts of students and I clap for every one of them, and those that I've had the opportunity to build, you know, a little bit more, I don't know if intimate's the right word, but, you know, I've gotten to know them a little bit better. I'm even more emotional. And, you know, for the most part, everybody gets there. And so, like I said, if you can just take those small steps that you need, 
um, and take it one at a time. It helps me not feel so overwhelmed, and I, I think it helps others too. So what is the job like as a nursing instructor? Is this something, because I'm mm-hmm. kind of curious about it myself. I think I enjoy mm-hmm. teaching people. I like precepting at the hospital. I like orienting new nurses, and I like, I just recently precepted a new nursing student that Aww. followed me around for seven and a half shifts and on CVICU, yeah, and he... um he was great. I loved it, and I, it kind of made me curious about teaching because I think I think I would like it. What do you? What would you say to somebody who's con- who to a nurse who's considering mm-hmm. maybe getting their master's well, or something you know, in teaching? The nice thing is, uh, many people will maintain both. You know, if they start teaching, they might be doing a bit of both clinical practice and teaching. I actually, when I was in my master's program, is when mm-hmm. I started teaching students in clinical. So I was like their clinical instructor. I really like that environment because it's small groups. You're out with students, you know, in the hospital or clinics or other places. And those tend to be the spaces where they feel most nursey. For those of us who have been through nursing school, you remember all the stuff that you felt like didn't really, you didn't have much passion for. But clinical usually, even though you were scared, it still felt like you were actually putting on, you know, the nurse part of you. And it feels really good. And I love watching like our junior students walking in looking pretty scared and nervous about what's to happen and then seeing how confident they are, you know, six weeks later. And the same is true with, for the seniors. They might walk in with a little less fear, but they really take a huge journey in that, you know, six to 12 weeks, depending on their clinical rotation, because then they're right about to graduate and they really are what I call full, fully baked, Right. But what I can say, because I know sometimes people wonder like, oh, well, I would miss working with patients. When I did go ahead and make the decision to start teaching full-time and to leave clinical practice, we're still nurses. Nursing students need nurses, right? You know, I, I think many folks consider nursing to be the toughest undergraduate degree that you can get. Nursing school is really hard. It's really stressful. There's a lot of emotions. You know, you're dealing with people's lives and life and death and suffering and and all of that. And all of that kind of exists in nursing school as well. You know, families and things are happening. People are losing folks and, and, you know, um, all the stuff that happens to us as individuals and families, right? Um, All of life's occurrences. And so I don't feel like I've left my nurse self behind. To me, nursing is how you think. It's not necessarily what you do. It's just, it's who I am, right? But it's also so great to contribute to the next generation of our profession, right? And I love being able to be a mentor or a source of inspiration for someone else. And, you know, I've been teaching for five years now and actually going on six. And to have this, so many of the nurses that are joining me in the Nurses of Color Collective are students that I've had in the past. And to hear from them and, you know, it's so lovely, you know, anytime one of them might share what kind of impact I might have had on their journey or just simply to witness their journey is really special. And so I would say, you know, if you enjoy being a preceptor, if you enjoy teaching, it can be a nice shift, you know, in general, you're probably not going to be making the same money that you're making in a clinical environment, but in general, you'll have a more manageable schedule, maybe for those that have families that would benefit from a more, you know, Monday through Friday kind of situation, 
you know, having weekends off for the most part, having holidays and breaks off is kind of nice. I've really, really enjoyed it. So I would say a good place to start, most of our, our clinical instructors have other jobs. So if you're even thinking like, well, I, I might like to try it out, that's a really good place to start. Because generally for most schools, if you have two years of clinical experience and are licensed in that state, that's pretty much what folks are looking for, for their clinical faculty. And you don't even necessarily have to be the subject matter expert, right? Like I know when I started, I was on an ortho floor and I'm like, I really, we never got ortho patients on my unit, but I, I, that's not what I was there for. That's who their preceptors are is their subject matter experts for that particular specialty. But I'm there to kind of help put the pieces together, you know, support them with assignments and. Interesting. So, so if I hear you right, it's like maybe don't necessarily step don't just jump right both feet first away from the bedside, but maybe see if there's like um, a clinical position or something like that, that maybe you can get involved with. I might have to look into that myself. That sounds Mm -hmm. kind of like, that actually Mm -hmm. sounds fun, you know, to be able to do. You know, I made the decision because I started my master's program and I was having trouble balancing that full-time job and my program. So I made the decision to go resource at my clinical job and then ended up picking this up. And it was a good fit because I was in a master's of nursing education program. But I think even before someone considers grad school, if they're not sure if they really truly want to be, say, a nurse educator specifically, I think doing even just a semester or a you know a quarter, depending on the school, of serving as a as a clinical instructor could be a really good kind of way to test the waters for sure. Yeah, because clinical experts don't necessarily make good teachers. I don't mean to say that in a negative way. I guess what I mean is teaching is is another skill on top of that. And so you want to make sure it's a good fit. You know, you can always return to the bedside for sure. But I guess before you're investing money in a program and something like that, it, you know. But I honestly, I think if you're one that really enjoys teaching and precepting and all that, it's, you, you probably already know if that's a direction you might want to head. Yeah, especially because I work at a, a, a level one trauma center that's a teaching hospital. Yeah. So they expect you to teach all the time. You, if you work there, they're like, if you're going to work here, you have to kind of, that's sort of part right. of the requirements is that you be willing to teach. And so it's, you find out right away whether or not you like that or not. Working with people who are new and fumble around and are insecure that you're having to kind of help them, you know, help build them up and, you know, help them with their, you know, help them feel secure about their abilities um, and um, maybe tell them more than once how to do something and learn how to tell, explain something right. in more than one way because everybody right. learns differently. So. That was one thing that I figured out right away was that, you know, not everyone learns the same way. So you've got to learn how to, you know, if you explain something and you can kind of get the deer in the headlights, look, you got to figure out another way to say it or yep. explain it or show it, demonstrate yeah. it or whatever, because everybody yeah, learns differently. And, you know, when I was in nursing school, most of, which was not that long ago, but most of my, even my clinical instructors were older, right? Um, I think most of my instructors in general were older, it's really interesting now. We've got quite um, quite a collection of amazing clinical faculty, many of whom are, you know, somewhat early in their practice, you know, within, say, the first three to five years. And it's such a great resource for students because they remember very clearly what it was like to be a student, and yet they've gotten to the point where they're really proficient as a nurse. That can just be a really helpful space, I think, for students. Well, Erica... 
thank you so much for coming on to the show and guest hosting. It's been so much fun, interesting conversation. We've talked about lots of different things. And I feel like it's been a great episode. I appreciate the University of Portland School of Nursing so much. Thank you, Tina. It's, yeah, this has been really fun. It's my first podcast. So thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And whenever you, and you guys, Erica is also thinking about starting her own podcast. So when, whenever you do get, uh, get that kind of up and going, maybe you can come back on and do another show and then we'll talk more about your podcast and people can, like, where they can be able to find it and that sort of thing. We love to have other nurses. Well, you know, a short update since we last spoke. The University of Portland is actually starting a podcast that I will be hosting. Oh, that's cool. And so I think that will give me a good opportunity to kind of figure things out. And then, yeah, eventually I would love to have my own. But yeah, I think we're going to be recording our first two episodes in the next few weeks. Wonderful. And if I can help you in any way, of course, just shoot me an email, whatever. But what kind of material are you going to, is this going to be open to the public or is it just going to be students? We're going to kind of explore all things. I mean, with me at the helm, it's probably going to have a racial and social justice spin to it. But, you know, we really look forward to, I think our first two episodes, we'll probably be talking about the impact of COVID on with some of our alum and then some of the work that we have been doing around racial justice at University of Portland, because, you know, I'm sure as with many organizations, things have kind of shifted since the events specifically over this past six, seven months. But yeah, like self-care, leadership, I'm kind of excited to think about different things that we can be talking about. And I think it'll be important to check in with our students and our alum of what they, what, you know, what r- nurses really want to hear and know more about. Well, good luck with that. That sounds like a nice endeavor. Well, you guys know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com and you can send me an email if you have any story um, ideas or just some feedback. I have gotten lately some of the most wonderful feedback from people. And I, don't, I know I, I talk about it every week, like you guys send me emails and feedback and stuff. And so <laughs> I, I guess that's why, because people are like, oh, okay, I'll send an email. I'm telling you, like I literally started crying the other day at work because I just happened, I, I picked my phone up and just glance at it. I'm like, oh, I got a message and I turn around and look at it. And then I start reading and I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is like Aww. the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. And then I just like shove it back in my pocket and like, I can't, like I can't, it's like, I'm going to get so emotional. You guys have no idea how absolutely sweet you are. Like that's just, it's so incredibly precious. I did a story back uh, a few weeks ago. I can't even remember exactly. Oh, it was for the 100th episode. And that story was about a psych nurse who basically, uh, it, it's just, it was a rough story. And the name uh, of the main uh, nurse in that story, she, this was a bad nurse story, but one of the people that this nurse injured was like the nurse manager. And that was Maria Jordan. And so this is, a, a very high profile story that had a lot of media coverage and it's it's been all over the uh, it's it's just a, a huge story and so we covered that story it was really kind of difficult to get through some of the details and the people that were hurt uh in this story mm. it was just it was very sad mm-hmm. um and yet inspirational at the same time because um the woman who survived this was just unbelievably strong. And so Kiki and I did that story together 
my best friend who also helps me with the podcast, and she and I did together. Um, I got oh, an wow. email from Maria Jordan, and I'm going to tell you when I first saw it because you guys, I get a lot of messages and emails from people, so I I tr- I really want really 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 badly to respond to everyone. So a lot of times, what I do is I'll read it through, and then I try to respond specific specifically to whatever they said, so that they know, like, yes, I heard, I got your message. I mm-hmm. I heard what you said, and then I'll respond to that. And so that's what I did. Then when she replied back and said, thank you, have a good evening. And I was like, oh, that was, and then I saw her name and I thought, oh, I didn't notice it at first. And then I Googled her when I saw her face, I, my stomach just dropped and I was like, wow. oh, that's actually her. And I, it kind of scared me at first because I thought, Man, I don't, I never know how people are going to take, you know, our show. And we try so, so, so incredibly hard to be respectful, especially of the victims and victims' families and that sort of thing. And like tell their Mm -hmm. story as much as we possibly can and honor them for what they went through. And we try to, as much as possible, you know, find the good in in these stories and try to educate people and and make a difference and try to hopefully prevent things from happening and and change lives with it. So when she responded back to me because because when when she responded back and said have a good evening then I realized who she was. I responded back to her and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I I did not realize who you were, but now I I do know and I'm so incredibly thankful for you reaching out." You know, I just let her know how much and I appreciated her. And then she sat there and sent the most beautiful email and I never know, you know, how people are going to take this. And and honestly, I've never actually heard back from a victim that we were from a victim of the story that we've done. And so I just didn't know um, what she was going to say because when she initially reached out, she said, hey, I want to give you some feedback, but I want to make sure that I'm, I've got the right place. You know, like I've got the right email. So if you would respond back. And so I responded back and I was like, yeah, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is Tina. Hey, looking forward to hearing back from you. Thank you. You know, blah, blah. Then she came back and said, okay, good. Have a good evening. And that's when I noticed her name and I looked her up and realized who it was. And I freaked out, of course, because I thought, oh dear, what kind of feedback is she going to get? I, I just thought, and she even said in the original email, she literally went out, purposely said positive. And I still, my brain was still like, scared, you know, like, what if I, you know, said something wrong? And she literally came back like the next day and I was at work when I got this email, but she said that she was heartened to see so many new nurses um, drawn to our podcast. She said that she shared our website with all of her. She's She's a nursing instructor now and that she shared our website with her students. And she said that she had, she wished that someone like mm. Kiki and I had spoken to her as a new nurse in the kind but realistic way that that we talk to nurses because um, we di- we directly try to give advice all the time on this podcast about being a new new nurse and we we do try to be honest about it but yet keep it positive because it is really easy to get negative when it comes to nursing. Yeah, so we try to balance it out. Um, she said that. Yeah. Yeah. She listened to the it's 100th episode twice, and she said the first time she was in shock, and the second time she had tears of appreciation. And she said that her husband had learned of the podcast for someone that he worked with who goes to nursing school, and that she told him about the podcast. And so 
she's, she said that she believed that we captured the essence. She said that she b- believed that we captured the essence, the true lessons to be learned of safety, following one's intuition that we are all psych nurses or we should be, and that kindness is still the way to go as the first attempt. And that was one thing that Kiki and I talked about, how you know this, this person was a psych nurse, but we were talking about all the nurses working around this person and about Maria and her coworker. It was such a, such a, such a sad, sad story, what happened. And so we were trying to kind of, at this, while we we're telling the story, educate people about, about the fact that it doesn't matter. If you, if you say you're going into nursing, but you don't want to be a psych nurse, if you're going to do any kind of bedside nursing and dealing with patients whatsoever, you're going to be a psych nurse. Yeah. Yeah, you are. So when she sent, and that was just a portion of her email, she sent a really nice email um, I was at work when I opened it and just happened to start looking at it like on a break. And I was like, oh, I just shoved it back in my pocket. Like, I can't read this right now. It's so emotional. It was so sweet. And I am going to try to have her on the podcast eventually, but because she's written some books, like really, really inspirational books. She's such a good person. Oh my goodness. If you guys haven't heard that episode, you really should go back and just hear the story. It is, oh, it's, I mean, it, wow. it's, it's shocking what happened. It's so it's so shocking and disturbing, and at the same time, you, there's so many lessons, good lessons to learn from it. And honoring the victims is one thing that we definitely try to do. But I appreciate you guys. That's not the only. Um, I get me- that. That was the. I was shocked. I got the shock of my life when I read that that she responded. But we get a lot of people just, that's just like I'm in nursing school, uh, and I've I've been really struggling. And I, you know, listen to you. You know, I've listened to you, and you. I hear you talk about. Um, how you love being a nurse and that sort of thing is so inspiring. And we get a lot of messages from new grads because we have a new grad episode that we did when we very first started. And it's this, the sound quality is terrible because I did not know what I was doing. And I went back and listened to it the other day because mm-hmm. I was like, I keep getting, you know, people still email about that episode. And I, I was like, the sound quality is atrocious, but I don't want to take it <laughs> off because I listened to that whole episode and I'm, I actually got inspired myself. I was like, I needed to go back and listen to that because I was kind of like, it was a couple of years ago. I was sort sort of still new myself and I, I could hear I could hear the <laughs> excitement in my voice and the earnest, yeah. you know, desire to want to be, you know, a good nurse and be positive and everything. And I was like, I need to listen to my own voice about that because it's a difficult time to be a nurse right now. It's really hard. It's so hard. We have... I mean, like probably three or four times the, the amount of number of patients are dying yeah. in hospitals all across this country than normally would be. And it's it's hard enough to deal with that as a nurse, but when you're dealing with it, you know, under these circumstances and dealing with, you know, family members yeah. can't be at the bedside and it's heavy, it's heavy. So any encouragement, any encouragement is um, always appreciated. Yeah, We really appreciate you guys. You can find us on social media at... Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on Instagram and GNBN Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. So love to hear from you guys. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, you guys have a wonderful week. And I just want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Good nurse.